word blessed appears in our text 10 times out of 10 verses. When a preacher preaches, they're letting you tour their thought life. They're letting you tour what's on their mind. A preacher can preach no better than he writes because first, before you preach it, you have to write it. And you can write no better than you think. And so when you're listening to a preacher preach, you're hearing the innermost being of their thoughts. Jesus here is sitting down to preach his message and to give out his thoughts, to regurgitate the innermost being of what's on his mind. And those of us that understand that Jesus is God realize if Jesus is preaching this, then God is saying this. What's on his mind? This is his most famous sermon in three and a half years of ministry. It's the hallmark. It's the one that most people would remember. And in his landmark sermon, what was on his mind? Blessing. How to give people the practical steps to live a blessed life. Because God at his core, in his innermost being, God is a blesser. I think most people have a poor view of God. They see him as this domineering judge or this angry person who's mad at everybody over their sin. But in God's depth, in his being, in his core, he's a good God. He's a merciful God. He's a loving God. He's a kind God. He's a good God. Here's one you may not have heard before. He's a happy God. God is happy. He likes blessing people. He likes seeing people walk in his blessing. So Jesus preached about blessing. Now, first of all, let's get our definitions right. Blessing doesn't mean that Cadillacs are going to fall down out of the sky and that your tree in your backyard is going to start growing $100 bills. Uh, the church has ruined us with that kind of teaching. That's not what the word of God says. There's two biblical definitions of blessing. The first is the supernatural ability to succeed over adversity. And I like that definition, the supernatural ability to succeed over adversity, because that definition guarantees there will be adversity. God never promised that you wouldn't have trouble or go through things. But when you're blessed, you have a supernatural. That means the source isn't you. You have a supernatural ability to ultimately succeed. So when it's all over, when the trouble you're going through is over, when the trial has ended, you're going to be standing successful because you have the blessing of God over your life. And then number two, the favor and empowerment of God over your life. One preacher said that an hour of favor is better than a lifetime of work. An hour of the favor of God is better than a lifetime of work. And to be blessed in the scriptural definition means to walk in the favor of God. And so really, when we look at these biblical definitions of what blessing means, you can't look at my car and see how blessed I am. You can't look at my clothes and see how blessed I am. You can't look at my job or my paycheck and see how blessed I am because my real blessing isn't in any of that. In fact, you could take all of that. And if I'm really blessed by God, I'll keep standing and ultimately get right back up again, no matter how much I lose, because I have the blessing, the supernatural ability to succeed over adversity. I have the favor and the empowerment of God over my life. Life. I am blessed. Somebody who feels like I do say I am blessed. So what does Jesus teach about blessing in this amazing sermon? Point number one, his first step is go broke. Everybody say go broke. He 
He says in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whatever that ring is, if y'all could take it out, it's hurting my ear. What it, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus talks about poor in spirit, he's not talking about rubbing your hands together and just, you, you, have, you don't even have two pennies to, to jingle together. You just, you're just poor and you're broke down and you're terrible. No, what's he say? Poor in spirit. He says you're blessed if you're poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means that you're spiritually bankrupt. To approach God knowing that you stand before him with nothing but debt. Okay. A survey of secular people asked them what they would do if they uh, suddenly appeared before God and were asked to give an account of their lives. Now, these are secular people, not Christians. And the common answer was, well, you know, I've tried to do a lot of good things in my life. Um, I try to do more good things than bad things, and I'm basically a good person, but I have had some failures that I'm not proud of. Now, to put their answer in economic terms, basically they're saying, I have some money in the bank, spiritually speaking. I've done some good deeds. I've banked some good behaviors and good actions, um, but I also have some debt. So maybe, God, you could take the equity of the good deeds that I've done and give me a loan against the debt and the bad deeds that I've done. I mean, after all, I deserve it. I'm basically a good person. And Jesus says, that is not the way. Poor in spirit means you realize that you're bankrupt before God. That spiritually you have nothing to exchange or to offer him for the grace and kindness of salvation he offers you. You realize that nothing in your life has earned or merited or deserved his grace. To be poor in spirit means you understand that salvation was a gift given to you that you could not afford. And Jesus says, you'll be blessed when you go to God, if you go broke. Point number two, repentance releases refreshing. Say it with me. Repentance releases refreshing. Verse number four, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, most people, when they read this, think, oh, God's so sweet. He's comforting people who are mourning the loss of a loved one. Not what the scripture means. Not to say that God doesn't comfort people in times of loss, but that's not what the scripture means. The word mourn there means godly sorrow over our sins and godly sorrow over the sins of our society. To have godly sorrow is to have a spirit of repentance. To recognize wrong when you do it and sorrow over it. Not to just go through your life sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and violating God's commandment, violating God's law and never thinking another thought about it. But, ha but having the sensitivity of heart that when you sin and you know you sin, recognizing it and then not only recognizing it, having sorrow and repenting of it. And God says when you repent, he releases comfort. Those of you that have just been feeling like something is wrong, just feeling like something uneasy, just feeling like something's not right in your life, I offer you this gift, the gift of repenting before God. 
Go to God and pour out your heart. Sorrow over your sins. Mourn over the sins of your society. And when you mourn like that before God, God releases. He releases comfort. Number three, this is a bad one. We'll get through it real quick. Submission guarantees inheritance. Submission guarantees inheritance. He said, blessed, blessed, say it with me, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the word meek there in the Greek translation is the word praupathia. Say it with me, praupathia. And it means submitted. Submission is a difficult topic, but the scripture teaches it nonetheless. That if we as believers will follow the scripture's instruction to walk in submission where it is appropriate. Where is it appropriate? Well, number one, submitted to God. Now, a lot of people say, I'm submitted to God. I know there's a God. I believe there's a God. And I know he's the ruler and all that. But real submission is not just this general idea of I'm submitted to God. Real submission is being submitted to his word. What's that mean? What's that mean? It means if the Bible says it's wrong, even if I like it and think it's right, I ultimately submit to the fact that it's wrong. I don't argue with the scripture, even if I don't like it. Now, if you really read your Bible, you're going to find a lot of stuff you don't like. I'll say it again. If you really read your Bible, you're going to find a lot of commandments, a lot of things in it that get up in your face and jack you up. You know, a lot of things. There's a lot of things that God says is wrong that I like. And yet I don't get to change his word to fit my culture, to fit the day or the time or the year I'm living in. Whatever his word says is the truth. Let God be truth and every man a liar, even me. Okay, that's what it means to submit, right? Now, submission is not submission until we disagree. Say that again. Submission is not submission until there's a disagreement. You know, if, uh, if Pastor Del Rico asked me to do something for him and I agree with it, then I'm not submitting to him. I'm not in submission. I'm in agreement. But when we disagree, okay, when there is disagreement, when I don't want to do what you asked me to do, and yet I choose to do it and I submit to it, that, that's the only point. Then and only then can there be submission. So we must submit to God. Here's a real bad one. Wives, can you feel the tension growing in the room? Can you feel the tension growing in the room? Can you? Wives, Bible still says it. Wives, submit to your husbands. But then it also says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself on the cross for it. So it's a challenging, hard word to wives, but I would submit to you that it's a more challenging word for the husbands because the husband has to love that woman to the point. How much do I have to love her? You got to love her to the point that that you self-sacrifice, 
that you're willing to have your feelings crucified and your passions crucified and your own will and desires crucified. You got to love her to the point that you're willing to say, not my will, but thine be as Christ. And when you have a wife that is submitted to her husband and a husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church, you got a rock solid marriage. What he's really teaching there about marriage is mutual submission. That there's times the woman needs to submit. And then there are times when the man will need to submit. It's mutual submission. And we can nod our heads and smile at the preacher and shout a little bit, but we don't do it because if we did, our homes would be so much healthier. Our nation wouldn't have the divorce rate that it has. Our children wouldn't be growing up in toxic environments of yelling and plate throwing and all this drama if we would learn submission. But we don't want nobody to tell us anything about anything. We never want to be challenged. We never want to be told we're wrong. Because we have a God complex. We worship at the altar of our own opinion and our pride replaces the anointing in our homes. And Jesus is teaching, if you will just submit, those that are submitted will inherit. It guarantees an inheritance when you submit. Not some spiritual inheritance. Not some inheritance when you die and go to heaven in the sweet by and by. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That means there's stuff on earth you'll get when you submit. There's benefits and rewards and an inheritance from God that you will receive if you will submit. Now, you may not be running around the church, but this is a word for somebody that if you will apply it to your life, that emotional distress will leave you. That pain in your home will vacate itself. That drama you've been having in your relationships will just melt away if you put the scripture on it. If you begin to operate how the scripture, how Jesus teaches to operate in your life, there will be an inheritance. Right? I told you we'd get through that one quick. Point number four, know that you're starving and eat the meal. Know that you are starving and then eat the meal. Jesus says, verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. When you're truly starving, Haven't eaten for days. Body's starting to eat itself. You're literally sick because you haven't eaten. When you're truly starving, you know why? It's because you can't feed yourself. Because if you could, you would. The nature of the human condition is that we are spiritually starving for a righteousness we cannot produce. You would feed yourself if you could, but you can't, so you don't. Listen, when somebody's starving to death, nobody says, I need to go get me some seeds and I'm going to plant a garden real quick and grow me some vegetables. Can't do it. Take too much time. Nobody that is dying of thirst says, if you'll give me a shovel, I'll dig me a well. 
don't have the time. You don't have the energy. You can't do it. If you're truly starving to death and dying of thirst, what you need is somebody who has the meal in excess that's willing to share their food with you. And so Jesus Christ saw us starving to death spiritually. No ability in our own selves to produce righteousness. So he came down to the earth, wrapped himself up in flesh, and he offered starving people a meal. The bread of his body and the drink of his blood. You have to know that in your state without Christ, you are starving. So recognize it and then feast on the meal. Amen. Number five. I like this one. God uses your spoon. Look at your neighbor and say, God uses your spoon. Verse number seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Look at, if you wouldn't mind real quick, one chapter over, Matthew 6, verse 12, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. And he says one little word that, in my opinion, is the biggest word in the Bible. It's a little word, but it's the biggest word in the Bible. When Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, verse 12, he says, and pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, God, I come to you as a sinner. I've committed crimes against your word and against your law. I need you to forgive me, and I want you to do it as much as I have forgiven the people that have wronged me. God, I want you to be as merciful to me as... That's a big old as right there. It's the biggest as in the Bible right there. Forgive me as I have forgiven other people. Now, look at Matthew 7, one more chapter over. Verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Watch. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, God uses your spoon. If you got a tiny little spoon for mercy and you dole out just a little bit of mercy here and just a little bit of mercy there and just a little bit of mercy there, then when it comes time and you need mercy, God will say, give me your spoon and I'll give you as much as you've been given. God uses your spoon. I got Levi and Sam some ice cream the other day. I got home. I took the top off the ice cream and it was just sitting there in a half gallon tube in all of its glory. And uh, we like ice cream in the house. And I told Levi, I said, boy, run to the drawer and uh, grab two spoons, one for you and one for your brother. You know what he did. He goes in the drawer. He gets the biggest spoon we have in the house for himself. And then he gets a tiny little baby spoon that we ain't used in two years for Sam. 
comes, you know, carrying his spoon over his shoulder and, and he just drops this little spoon. So you know what I did? I took the spoon that he got for Sam and I gave it to him. That's the spoon you're going to use. God uses your spoon. So when you're doling out forgiveness, get a big spoon. When you're doling out mercy, get a big spoon. When you're doling out generosity, get a big spoon. When you're doling out help to strangers, get a big spoon. Because God said, with the measure you meet out, I'll make sure it's measured back to you again. I'm going to use the measuring cup, the measuring stick, the spoon. I'm going to use the tool you used in bringing it back to you. God uses your spoon. Number six, forgiveness actively purifies the heart. Now we see this in verse eight of Matthew chapter five says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The word pure there in the Greek is the word katharos. Everybody say katharos. It's where we get our word catheter. Okay. Now, catheters aren't wonderful things to think about, especially for men. But I heard one strong amen. I, you know. Just keep going, boy. A catheter is a mechanism designed to drain impurities as they build up. Now, think about it. Everything that was designed to go forward has a built-in system to eliminate impurities. Because you can't go forward without elimination. You can't go forward without eliminating what you've already been through or else the toxicity and impurities build up and your forward motion will eventually be destroyed. So your car, because it goes forward, it has an exhaust pipe in the back so that you can take in the air that you need and combust what you're through with. The human body has a built in system of elimination. You take food in and you're going forward with your energy, but then naturally, just automatically, your system will eliminate. Okay. God designed everything natural to have a system of elimination in it. The only thing that doesn't have an automatic system of elimination in order to go forward is your soul, your heart. It has no built-in automatic system to eliminate the waste to eliminate the toxins, to eliminate the residue of the many hurts, disappointments, losses, and griefs. And because there is no automatic system of elimination, it builds up. You, you clogged up, you know, excuse me for the analogy, but imagine not having a, a bowel movement for 20 years. Somebody said you'd be dead. Well, yeah, but, but imagine 
Imagine how toxic your body, how poisonous your body, how stinky your body. And as gross as that is, that's how some of us are on the inside sitting in here this morning because you've still got hurts, pains, disappointments, resentments that have been sitting right in your heart for 20 years that you never eliminated. Still going to bed thinking about who hurt you. Still talking to your sister about who did you wrong 10 years ago. Still carrying and harboring the things that happened while you were a child. Still reliving your traumas and your fears. And it's been sitting there for decades. And what you don't realize is your forward motion is being blocked. Your ability to have success in the future relationships God's designed for you is being inhibited because all your soul is blocked up with the pain and the misery of the past relationships. And the crazy thing is the relationship is over and yet you're still living, carrying it in your heart. The person who hurt you is gone. In some cases, they're not even alive anymore. And here you are keeping the hurt alive in your heart because the heart has no system to automatically eliminate the impurities. And to this, Jesus offers a catheter. He said, blessed are those that have catharos in their heart or a catheter. A designed system to drain the impurities as they build up in your life. What is the catheter? It's forgiveness. Making the decision to finally let it go. To get it out of you. It's been there too long. You got to get it out of you. You've cried too many tears over it. You got to get it out of you. It's, it's not serving any other purpose but your detriment. It's slowing you down. It's preventing you from having the blessing and the promises God has designed for your life. And Jesus said you'll be blessed if you put the catheter in your heart and drain the impurities drain the impurities now forgiveness doesn't mean that what they did was right forgiveness doesn't mean that what they did was okay forgiveness doesn't mean that you're justifying them forgiveness isn't to help them forgiveness is to help you One person said that holding on to unforgiveness against a person is like you drinking poison and expecting them to die. It's poisoning you. That way you feel about them and how you, how you know, it's like scratching an itch when you talk bad about them. You just blast them real good to all your friends and just let them have it. And, and it may feel good in the moment. It's, it's toxifying your soul. And it's slowly killing you on the inside. You need to let it go while you still got time, while you still got the mobility of your limbs, while you still got the brightness in your eyes. You do know that 
that you're not finished yet. You do know that your life is not over yet. You do know that you have not accomplished all that you're going to accomplish. You're not finished winning. You're not finished taking ground. You're not finished moving forward. God has a lot of things in store for you that you haven't even thought of yet. And in order to get to them, you got to purify this and let it go. And Jesus says, you'll be blessed if you do it. In fact, not only does he say you'll be blessed, he said you'll be able to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Some of your relationship with God, you know, some of you, your relationship with God hasn't moved forward in years because it's never moved past your point of unforgiveness. In the scripture, Peter urges husbands and wives to remain in good standing with each other, and he urges them uh, not to have unforgiveness against each other because he said it can hinder your prayers. In another place, Peter says, if you're coming to pray at the altar and to bring a gift, like an offering to God, and while you're kneeling down to pray, you remember that you have ought or you have something against your neighbor or against your brother or sister. Peter said, stop praying, get up from the altar, go to that person, get it right, fix it, forgive it, get it out of you, resolve the matter, then come back to the altar and keep praying. In other words, your ability to reach God in moments that you really need to can be hindered by your heart being so plugged up and full of unforgiveness. So put the catheter in, drain it out, and you'll see God. And then, number seven, make peace a priority. Make peace a priority. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. He doesn't say blessed are the, pe uh, the peace prayers or the peace hopers. He said blessed are the peace makers. In other words, when you come on the scene in whatever scene you're stepping onto, you're the one that's there to bring the peace. You know, you step into work. There's a whole lot of people that bring a whole lot of things to work. You know, every one of you got somebody that brings the drama. Every time you go to work, they bring the drama. Okay. Other people, they bring their emotions. They're weepy at work. They always walk into work with tears in their eyes. So everybody will ask them, what's wrong? Sometimes they're putting eye drops in in the parking lot so that when they walk in, everybody in the office will run over to them. Are you okay? What's wrong? You know, some people bring anger to work. Some people bring hostility. You can't do anything about what other people bring to a situation. But just make sure when you come in, you bring the peace. Everybody say, I bring the peace. Be a peacemaker in your home, in your relationships, at work, in your community. Be a peacemaker. Somebody got furious with me. I mean, furious. I can't just, I can't even say the words they said to me. I mean, I have said the words they said to me, but, but I try not to. Furious with me for not pushing uh, a presidential candidate, you know, 
and, and telling everybody, you know, how they ought to vote, you know? And I said, I can't do that. They said, why? I said, I'm a peacemaker. I'm a peacemaker. And because I know that no matter what happens on November 4th, the morning of November 4th, no matter what happens November the 3rd, November the 4th, God will still be on the throne. I refuse to lose my peace. I refuse to lose my joy. I refuse to lose my mind. I refuse to wring my hands because whatever happens November 4th, God is still in control. And because he's my God, I'm blessed. Because his words in my heart, I am blessed. Because his blessings on my life, I am favored and prosperous. And so are you. So, because of that, be a peacemaker. Everywhere you go, in everything you do, make the decision to bring the peace. Look at your neighbor with an attitude and say, bring the peace. Look at somebody else. Say, bring the peace. Now stand up on your feet. Blessed. The blessed attitude. Not the be attitude. That's a silly word. Blessed attitude. That's what was on his mind when he sat down. You know, I, I didn't want to go into this because we, we have a pretty good group of people here today and everybody's at different levels of understanding the Bible and theology and all that. And this is just overkill, but for you, okay, since you're studying right now in deep study, I'll give this to you. In the beginning of chapter five, it said Jesus came into a place and when he sat down he opened up his mouth now Jesus sitting down is not an ordinary man sitting down the Bible says when God after he finished creating through six creative days when he was done he sat down the Bible says when Jesus ascended into heaven after accomplishing our salvation by dying on the cross. Paul said he sat down with all authority in his hand. Okay. Jesus sat down. When Jesus sat down, you know, in, in old school protocol, we don't have manners like this in our world anymore, but in old school protocol, if the, if the family was having dinner and everyone was at the table and the father came in or the mother came in, everyone at the table would stand up. And no one would sit down until the leader of the family sat down. When Jesus sat down, he was sealing something for the disciples. He was clearing the spiritual air, wiping it all away, and preparing to deliver a message directly to their hearts. He sat down, and then he opened his mouth to give these simple instructions. And what was on his mind? Blessed. I want you to live blessed. Listen. I've sat down to clear any hindrances from the outside of you being blessed. 
Disciples, you didn't see it, but when I sat down, all of Satan's power to curse you was broken. When I sat down, any generational struggle, any generational thing that's been running through your family for the last four or five generations, it died. When I sat down, I cleared the air over your life. And now if you'll listen to my word, you will have what this word says you will have because I said it. That's what Jesus was saying. He opened his mouth and he poured out of his heart, out of his mouth, God's intent, God's amazing love and desire. I want to bless you. Do these things and you'll walk in blessing that the devil cannot stop, that people cannot stop, that enemies cannot stop. I already set out. Do these things and you will be blessed. Give the Lord a great praise all over the house.